keep. And right after the moral law and the commandments were given, God gave the ceremonial law and the sacrificial law for exactly that point, that we would need to be purified from our ongoing sin and we would need a sacrifice in order to uh, make up for the fact that we on our own would not be righteous. We would need a substitute. And that that law was actually pointing us like a tutor uh, or like a schoolmaster towards Christ. And so it revealed our need for a Savior and it revealed our sinfulness and it pointed us towards that Savior in Jesus Christ. That was its point. And he says that apart from the law, there was the promise of God and it's the promise of God by which we are made righteous. Abraham didn't do anything to inherit that promise. Eve didn't do anything to inherit that promise. They just had to trust that God's promise was right and good, and they trusted, and it was counted to them as righteousness. And the same is true for us. We just believe in Jesus Christ, that all the promises find their yes in him, and we are found righteous by our faith or our trust in Jesus Christ. And he says, by that, we then are children of Abraham. We are just like Abraham's descendants because we have faith like he has faith, and because we are his descendants, we are his heirs. And in chapter 4 now, as we move on, the first section of chapter 4, Galatians 4, 1 to 11, Paul is expanding on this idea of us being children and us being heirs. And it's an amazing section of text, in fact. And I'm just going to address two-thirds of it, because the part on adoption I want to save for next week. I looked at the whole section of text and thought I'm going to do it all together the same way Paul has, but I can't do it. He's woven three different ideas here. The idea that we are sons, the idea that we are or children, the idea that we are slaves, and the idea that we are adopted. And I can't do all three, so I'm going to do the first two. But So when we read this, the adoption part is in the middle. So if you just want to imagine with me that this is like a chocolate layer cake, okay? So the top and the bottom part are like really dense, good, dark chocolate cake. And it's going to be amazing, those two parts. But the middle part is like the triple chocolate fudge mousse that they put in the middle, okay? And that's what we're doing next week. So you can enjoy the chocolate cake this week, but next week you've got to come back for that middle part in the middle that's just unbelievable on, on the part on adoption. So, so this is where we are coming into chapter 4, is that Paul is now expanding on his his illustration that he's made about us being children of Abraham or children by faith and heirs. And he's made those two main points that the law has kept us in captivity. So we were in captivity under the law because the law showed us our sin and our inability to be righteous on our own. And the other point was that the law was teaching us like children are taught. It was a tutor pointing us forward to Christ. And so he continues those two ideas of captivity, that we were under captivity under the law, and we were children under the law. And he uses an illustration. And I'll just read Galatians 4, 1 to 11, and you'll kind of see the illustration, and then he gives an explanation, and then he provides a solution, and then we end with an implication. Galatians 4, 1 to 11. Uh, let's hear God's word. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons." Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. 
However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. This is God's word. So Paul's got a lot of things going on in there. And like I said, I tried to make this one sermon, but I can't. So it's going to be two. And um, I want to address right off the bat just this sort of relentless use of the word sons here, the masculine pronoun, and not sons and daughters. As in other places in your Bible, the word that's used is is properly translated, because quite often it does mean children or sons and daughters or or siblings. But it's important here that we, we don't allow our culture in this part of the text to cloud the meaning that Paul has in his culture. Okay, So this is relentlessly masculine in the pronoun and in the sense of inheritance on purpose. Because the illustration is about inheritance and adoption, and it would lose its strength of meaning in this culture or his culture to say sons and daughters. Because the reality is in that time, daughters didn't have the same inheritance rights as sons. Okay, So you have to understand that Paul's trying to make a point here that we are all as Christians equally identifying with the primary inheritor, which would be the son. Okay, So if you're a woman here today, Paul knows he was preaching to women. He knows that 50% of the church in Galatia, just like any other church, 50% of the church in Galatia was women. Okay, He he knew he was preaching to women, but he's making a point here that we identify as Christians with the primary inheritor. Also just notice that Paul also knows that he's speaking to slaves, and he's talking about being under slavery and then set free. Okay, there is some amazing countercultural teaching that's going on in Scripture that, that we largely miss because of the culture that we live in. But I just want to address that so that um, I don't want you to be offended to think, oh, i got to be a man in order to inherit. You know, No, you don't have to. Paul's making an identity illustration that as Christians we all identify with the primary inheritor. And the reality is, is that, 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 that the things that Paul says here, uh, regardless of race, regardless of social status, regardless of gender, everybody sees their freedom and their inheritance equally from God, which is just, was an incredible notion even. Just pause for a minute and think how radical that would be even to talk that way in Paul's time. I mean, to say that, that it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not, it doesn't matter whether you're slave or free, it doesn't matter whether you're man or woman, we all inherit equally from God. This would just blow people's mind in the Roman Empire, okay, and in the Jewish tradition. So just, just so that you understand that in terms of the pronouns Paul's using. So he says now in his illustration, the first two verses are the illustration. He says, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so, so Paul's argument says that, that we are children of Abraham and heirs of his promise, But what exactly does that mean for us? What does it mean for us as a people, as humanity? But then what does it mean for us as individuals as we come out of our childhood and into the knowledge of Christ? So the illustration continues to point out to childhood and to house slaves or to bond servants. The word there is doulos. And Paul says a child is just like a slave, even though he can inherit everything. You know, and he knows he's talking to some who are Jews at this time. Not a lot, probably, in Galatia. Remember, this is in Galatia, the area of Turkey. It's largely a a Greek-Roman area, not so much Jewish. But he knows that that he's speaking to Jews, and he also knows that there's Turks and Greeks and Europeans there who've been living under Roman rule for their whole life. 
And Paul just wants to illustrate for them this coming-of-age notion that he has here for our faith, and that it's required for us to be free from the law and inherit a promise. And we don't really have in our culture a culture of coming to age. So this illustration is a bit a bit weird for us as North Americans, right? We don't really have official coming-of-age ceremonies the way the ancients did. But there's a lot of meaning buried into Paul's illustration that we have to unpack. If your background was Jewish, even if your background is Jewish still today, uh, actually his illustration has more insight for you uh, because of the bar mitzvah, right? It's still a, a regular ceremony that's widely practiced in Jewish culture. And so that ceremony that, that Paul's Jewish listeners would reflect on in his illustration represents that transition from boyhood to manhood. It is a specific time set by the Father in which you transfer from boyhood to manhood. And it, and it symbolizes this transition from, from being a child under the guardianship of the parents or managed by parents and becoming an adult at a set date and time. And in the bar mitzvah ceremony, the final prayer of the Father is really interesting. The final prayer of the Father in a bar mitzvah uh, ceremony uh, goes like this in better Hebrew than I can pronounce. He says, Baruch Shepita Rene Meonesh Halaza, which means, Blessed be he who has released me from being punished for this boy. You see, now if I knew this was in the bar mitzvah, we would have had one for Isaac a long time ago. <laughs> I did not realize that this is what it was about. So it pays to brush up on your Hebrew just so you know these opportunities are there for you. Uh, as a parent. But no, it means, praise be to God who's released me from responsibility for this boy. He's no longer my boy. He's no longer my responsibility. God, he's your responsibility. He stands now on his own before you. That's the whole idea. But then he's also speaking to people in Galatia who were Greeks or, or people in the Roman Empire. And in the Greek context, a, a child is, is sort of under parental jurisdiction until about the age of 18. And then they spend two years under the jurisdiction of the state. And then once they turn 20, they go out on their own. So again, there's this idea that there's an appointed time in which they mature. Um, but most explicitly, I think, for Paul in terms of, of this uh, particular audience that he has is his listeners would hear it in a Roman context. They're in the Roman Empire. They've been under the Roman Empire for a long time. And the Roman context is that, that young boys wore a toga with a, with a purple hem or a, a crimson border along the bottom. All the young boys wore this crimson hem toga. It's called a toga praetexta. And when a boy reached a certain age, which was established by the father actually, usually between 14 and 17, there's a ceremony where he discards the purple hem toga and he enters into adulthood by wearing a white toga. And it's called the toga virilis. It's a great word for it, right? The toga virilis. But the interesting thing is, is that that toga virilis, when he's a man, is also in the ceremony known as the toga libera, the toga of liberty, or the toga of freedom. And so it symbolizes. You can see what Paul is doing here when he's using this illustration. And I'm just trying to sort of unpack for you a little bit about what's going on in the listeners of Paul, is that there's a point when you're a childhood under guardianship and you are managed and you're just like a slave, right? And they're cluing into what he's saying, but then you put on that toga liberis. You put in that toga of freedom. And at one point you were a child and under guardianship and in every meaningful way you were just like a slave. Someone told you when to get up. Someone told you when to eat. Someone told you in the household when to do chores. Someone took you to school. They made you do your homework. They sent you to bed. You know, even though you had the promise in that household to one day inherit everything, even though you were 
sort of going to be the owner of the whole estate, until that appointed day came, there was nothing you could do about it. You were just a child, and you did what you were told. No different than a house bond servant. No different than a doulos. You were the same. And you're helpless prior to that point until you move from being a, under a guardian to receiving the promise of the inheritance. And so something has to happen to redeem us legally or ceremonially from, from slavery and to move us from children into inheritors of the promise. This is what Paul's illustration is getting at. And so then, so then the question then becomes, who are the guardians then? And what is the slavery that Paul is talking about? And he was talking about our slavery to the law, but Paul's going to actually unpack a couple more layers of slavery here as well. In verse 3 he says, So also we, so this is the illustration, so then we, so that just like us, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. See, now that's an interesting phrase. We were, what we are slaves to are the elemental things of the world. So before we came of age by trusting in the promise that was made to us, before that maturity came to us by faith in God, Paul says we were just like little children. And like little children, even though they may one day inherit a great promise, they were under bondage as well. They were slaves to the elemental things of the world. Now normally when Paul talks about slavery, what, is normally, what does Paul normally say when he says we're slaves to something? says we're slaves to sin. Yeah, we're slaves to our flesh, or you know, we're slaves to greed, or we're slaves to anger, or we're slaves to uh, adultery, or we're slaves to sexual immorality, all these different things. Right? That, when, when Paul talks about slavery, you normally expect him at that point to say, you were held in bondage under sin. But he doesn't say sin. He says the elemental things of the world. Well, that's interesting. And so we're not going to understand this without knowing what that means. And the elementary things or the elementary principles or even the elementary spirits, it can, be interpret, it can be translated all three ways. The word there can mean any of those things. And, and to make matters worse is I think that Paul actually means the word in more than one way. But it's important that we get this because Paul's revealing something, and this is what I wanted to focus on today, is Paul is revealing something about our nature as human beings prior to coming to the knowledge of the Lord. And it is about our childness ishness in our thinking and it is our slavery to the elemental principles of the world and what those things are the greek word there is stoichei and on the one hand understanding it in this first context it very simply means basic worldly principles or basic philosophies or patterns of thought or even a worldview you could say And Paul has in mind here the fundamental principles by which we understand and make sense of and meaning of the world. Even as we're children, as we're growing up, how do we make sense of the world? How do we understand the world? How do we start to learn about the world and know things? And in some aspects of Greek and Roman thought, Paul would also be referring to literally the elemental science of those days. The basic principles of matter were earth, fire, water, and air. And everything was, in an elementary way, made up somehow of those four materials. Or philosophically, in the day, Paul would be referring to the basic principles of human thought and social order. So he would be referring to Plato's archetypes, or he would, or say Socrates' ethics. All things that in the Roman Empire, people just took as first principles. That this is how you ordered society. This is how humanity worked. 
or religiously, the fundamentally pagan ideas of God as a part of nature, that our lives were controlled by the stars and the planets. And, and there's a lot of people who still believe that today, judging by the horoscope and uh, the astrology section of the newspaper. There's still people who order their lives by the elementary principles of the world, right? They, they think that depending on where Mars is in alignment to the sun has some impact on their life, right? Or that the people of his day would worship the sun or worship mountains or worship trees or worship animals and nature. And there's still people today that think like that, that we worship nature itself and not God. And so Paul intends, and we know that Paul can intend the word to convey at some level that meaning of just elementary principles of how we view the world. And we see that in Colossians 2.8. He's used this phrase before. And it's helpful to let scripture interpret scripture, or even let Paul interpret Paul. In Colossians 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception or according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, the stoicheiai, rather than according to Christ. And so at some level here, Paul is saying your slavery is to these elementary principles, these philosophies, this pedagogy, this epistemological system that you have in place of how you learn and how you understand learning, how you make sense of the world. Those things can take you captive. This is a a deep thought here that Paul is conveying in like two sentences. We can be slaves to the way we perceive the world. And so bringing this meaning forward to us today, let me try and help with that, is we might also think of the elementary principles that take us captive or we are in danger of being bonded to is the current spirit of the day, of our culture, of our generation. What is the elementary spirit of this day? The current trend in thinking by which we are told we are meant to order our lives. Are we not told by our culture there are ways we're supposed to think and not think? And things that we are told have to be true, and we cannot counter them. In the scientific world, we might say that naturalism is the elementary principle of this day. Since because we, all we can ever measure is science, by science is the natural world, then therefore only the natural world exists. And to say that anything other than the natural world exists, you cannot say. Because all we can measure is the natural world. Science tells us that's all it is. And so we have today, in the spirit of the day, the elementary principle of naturalism. Only things that exist are things that we see naturally and can measure by science. And that is put forward, especially to our children, as an elementary principle that they cannot deny. They are not supposed to argue that principle when they are in school growing up under the guardianship as children. Or in the area of truth, we would say, I would say postmodernism or relativism is the elementary spirit of this day. There is no absolute truth. There is only my truth or your truth and his truth and her truth. And no one is permitted to say what is or isn't true. And that is put forward as an elementary principle which cannot be argued with. If I have decided what is true for me, you have no permission to enforce on me any other truth. And that is what is taught to us as an elementary principle in our day, especially, again, to our children when they are under guardianship. Or in the area of ethics or morality, we have secular humanism, the idea that there is no higher moral authority than humanity itself. We can decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. In fact, we do decide that for ourselves. We decide all the time what is right and wrong and what is good and evil. And how we decide that as a society, given that postmodernism says that there is no truth, I'm not sure how we're supposed to do that, but I guess the result of postmodernism and secular humanism would be that eventually Eventually, everything will be legal. Abortion, prostitution, drug use, euthanasia. Oh, what, 
yeah, everything is becoming legal, isn't it? What do you know? So when you combine postmodernism with secular humanism, you get everything is permissible. Everything is legal. Because you can't tell me what my truth is, and humanity is our own highest moral authority, so we get to decide. But just to, So those are three big elementary principles, just to sort of get your head around the idea. In our current day, there are elementary principles in our culture, and Paul says, apart from Christ, Apart from being set free from those elementary principles, they will enslave you the way you think, the way you act, what you believe to be true. And so before this promise of Christ comes into your life, then you are just like children and you are enslaved to these principles that govern you. And they control you. They do not free you. And there's many other more obvious elementary principles of our day that can enslave us that we could talk about and that Paul would agree with. Like what has once enslaved you? Or what struggles and still tries to get its hooks into you that are an elementary principle of our culture and our day that still bind us up? It could be materialism, the quest for more stuff. You know, the one with the most toys at the end wins. It could be fatalism, just the resignation that nothing you can do can alter the outcome of your life. And so just eat, sleep, work, and die. That's all there is to life. You know, or worse, nihilism, right? Why bother eating or working or doing anything since it all ends in nothing? Or maybe narcissism, right? Joy only comes from bending everything to my own joy and my own purpose. Everything is in the world to serve me. These are all elementary principles that can enslave us and destroy us if we're not careful. Paul says, before you knew Christ, or maybe for some of us here today right now, before you know Christ, those are the elementary philosophies and principles that enslave your mind and they thus enslave your life because you cannot break free from the grip of materialism or the grip of narcissism, right? Or you can't break free from postmodernism. You can't break free from secular humanism. You will do things your way and nobody will tell you any different. And they will destroy you. They do not set you free. And so Paul looked around Rome and he looked around Athens and he he traveled the breadth of the Roman Empire and he saw people trapped by false religions and deceptive philosophies and empty worldviews, people that can be set free by knowing Christ. And he says, that's how you're set free. That's how you move from under the guardianship of these elementary principles and slavery into freedom in Christ. Which leads to the second sense in which Paul is using the phrase elementary things or elementary spirits. And this is also going to be a little bit hard for us in our modern Western culture to get our head around, but this is what Paul is talking about. If you look down in verse 8, he returns to this idea of slavery or bondage to these things. And in verse 8, he says, However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Okay, now that's interesting. And it's important that we understand it. Because it would be very rational and Western and naturalistic of us to read this text and think that Paul is only talking about social philosophies. Paul is only talking about ethics or the teaching of Socrates or, you know, the the secular humanism of his day. Or even he might even just be talking about meaningless pagan religion that really is just, it's empty and has no actual form or substance. As if they were just bad patterns of thought or misguided effort, which they are. But then Paul layers in another meaning here. That there's more to these elementary principles than just is what's going on on the surface. He says, when you enslave yourself to them, they are not just errors in thought. They are not just misplaced affections. They are actually spiritually demonic. That there is a spiritual battle going on for your hearts and minds. 
And he says, when you were children at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. He's talking about things now. He's not talking about ideas. He's not talking about concepts or even religions. He's talking about personalities. He's talking about spiritual demonic influence, principal elementary spirits. And so behind these movements in our culture and behind the pagan idols and behind the Eastern mysticism, there is a real spiritual danger, which is that this is the influence of our enemy on culture and that you are enslaved to actual demonic beings, that there's a spiritual war going on behind these things. And if we pursue those things in our life, then we enslave ourselves not to God, but to those things who are by nature not God, the opposite of God, Paul would say. And we see this in 1 Corinthians in the sense of pagan worship. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 to 20, he says, What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, they're nothing. No, but I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Paul says, this is what's going on. They don't know the deception they're under, but there is a spiritual battle going on for them. And when you don't know God, the only alternative is Satan. And it goes even farther than this. Remember Paul's argument in chapter 2 and 3, that the, the law of God itself is also an elementary principle itself. And if it's misused, even the law of God is an elementary principle that can destroy you if it's misused. So Paul says of the law in Romans, he says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So Paul says, and this is his argument in Galatians as well, that understand that if you just follow the law like a bunch of rules, as if the law can save you, it will end up killing you. You have to move on from the elementary principles of that. And in Hebrews, he says, we have to move on from the elementary principles of the faith. Right later on, when we get to the conclusion, he's going to say, you, you know, you follow years and months and seasons and weeks. He's referring to the ceremonies of the law. He says, you're, you're following these ceremonial things as if they mean something and they're actually enslaving you. So Paul means elementary principles in all three of these ways. This is why it's a fairly complicated text, but the illustration is clear now, I hope, that you can see that when, when Paul says elementary principles of this world, he means all three of these things. He means the, the spirit or the ideas or the philosophies of the, the day that tell us and how to think and what to do and how to behave. They can enslave us. He says it's the pagan idol worship. It's the pagan nature worship that demons are behind. And he says it's even the law itself. It's the ceremonial law that you have bought into as if you can make yourself righteous. Our enemy in this spiritual battle, will be happy to support you in any of those three elementary principles. Right? He will support you in all the social justice and secular humanism and you know, fight for the poor and build houses for people and be a good ethical person in society. Satan will help you out all you want in there as long as you never turn to God and depend on him. Satan would love it if you would fall into Eastern mysticism or worshiping nature or paganism. You know, because that's the best possible idea, because then you're actually worshiping those things that are not God. But get this, Satan is even quite happy to help you keep the Ten Commandments and obey the law as long as you do it in your own power and in your own self-righteousness and think what an awesome person you are, like a Pharisee, who has kept the law so great and God's got to give you a gold sticker at the end. Satan will help you do that because he knows 
It will destroy you. So any of those three elementary principles are a spiritual battle that we are in. And Paul says you have to move from childhood into adulthood. You have to move from bondage into slavery. And at the appointed time, that takes place. He gives the solution. He says in verse 4, this is the appointed time of the Father. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. He says, if, you are, if you're slaves, you need to be legally redeemed. And I stopped short on the end of partway through five there because we're going to do adoption next week. I just wanted to deal with childhood and slavery this week. Okay, but if we are slaves, we have to be legally redeemed. We have to be legally set free. And this is something, again, that the Roman citizens fully understood. And there were several ways that slaves could gain their freedom, okay? They knew slavery. Not slavery like we know slavery in North America, a different kind of slavery, but they understood slavery. The Romans understood slavery. Depending on how you became a slave, time could pass. You could go through seven years of being a doulos, of being a house bond servant, and after seven years, you would be set free. Or someone could pay off your debt. They could redeem you by paying your debt and paying, or paying the value of you as a house servant to that person and say, okay, they got five years left. That's worth this much. Here's the money. He's free. So there were ways you could be redeemed as a slave, and they understood this idea of redemption. And Paul says, here's the solution for your slavery. At the right time, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, which is important to pick up on, meaning that Jesus was with God already, and he went forth from where he was already in heaven. He's not just a a baby human who was born and then God turned into Jesus, that would be heresy. Jesus is with God and he comes forth from God and he came to us. He was born of a woman to redeem humanity. Jesus himself has to be human and he's born under the law in order to set us free from the results of God's righteous law. Then Jesus had to be under the law himself and fulfill it so that he could redeem those under the law. So this is a legal transaction that takes place through Jesus when we, by faith, trust in the promise of God. When we become children of Abraham and children of promise and we put our faith in the one who is the promise, which is Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus and trust in God's promise that he is enough, that he is the fulfillment of the law and he's the substitute for our sinfulness, then we are moved from child into full inheritance. Or Paul would say, you're moved from slave into freedom. Both of those things are true. You become a child of God, and you are set free from bondage. And Paul describes the transaction very clearly in Colossians, if you want to see this sort of legal redemption language. In Colossians 2, 13 to 15, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having been forgiven, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen indeed. And it's even interesting, verse 15 there. Does that ring familiar? He disarmed the rulers and authorities. What do rulers and authorities sound like? Powers and principalities or elementary principles. God disarms all of those things that are not God's because he has nailed our legal debt to the cross. 
And Paul wants this crystal clear. He says, you were a slave. You had no access to the promise. You were held under lock and key until the time that the Father chose. Jesus came to set you free. And now you are You were a child and you were enslaved and you were bound until that time that you look away from the principles of the world and even the principles of the law and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So in both sense, Paul is arguing. He's arguing for humanity as a whole. We were all waiting. Romans 8, we're going to get to next week. He says we're all waiting for the adoption of sons. Humanity was waiting until the time that the Father appointed that Christ would come and set us free. But then we individually as brothers and sisters sitting here, those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ, we have to make that transition too, that we have to look to Jesus for our own salvation, that we have to look to be set free by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, when you become a child of Abraham and an inheritor of that promise, then you're set free from all those elementary principles. So the message today is quite simple, is that we're sons, not slaves. We're sons, not slaves. And the conclusion is, it's foolish to go back. This is Paul's application. This is his implication at the end. He says, your son's not slaves. It's foolish to go back. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, even better, to be known by God, How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Paul says simply, look, Christians, brothers and sisters, if you really believed in the gospel that I brought to you, if you really trusted in Christ as your Savior and he set you free from the principles of the law and he sent you free from paganism and he set you free from the elementary principles and teaching of the day that leads nowhere if you've been set free from the deceptions of this world and materialism and self-gratification and self-glorification and you've been set free from futile ways of thinking set free from being under the authority of the world's immorality and set free from self-striving efforts for righteousness why would you go back Why? Why would you mess around with going back to the way the world thinks or the way pagans worship or the way the law condemns you? You've come to know God even better than that. Rather, he says, you are known by God. It's not just that you know God. I mean, I can sort of get my head around the idea that there's a God out there that I can learn about. (laughs) Paul says, hey, let me clarify, God knows you. Why would you go back from that? That makes no sense. Your sons, not slaves. Why would you go back? It's foolish to go back after you're set free by the world. So don't get tricked back into the world. The application here from Paul and the application from us is don't get fooled back into the world, okay, Christians? Right? You can read stuff in a book or read stuff on the paper or hear something on the news and think, oh, that's a really good idea. I'm, I'm kind of into this postmodern I- idea. I kind of like the idea that my truth is my truth and you know, your truth is your truth. and you know, That lets me, gives me a lot of freedom in how I can do things and order my life. Don't fall for it, okay? Don't fall for that. 
You know, don't fall for materialism. Don't, don't fall for self-gratification. Don't fall for immorality that in secular humanism, you know, we can just make up our own ethics. Don't fall back into that trap. You've been set free from it. Keep your guard up against those things. Don't get tricked back into the world. And if you're here today and you're thinking, I'm a natural secular humanist postmodern, the world is deceiving you. It's deceiving you no different than it's deceiving our children when they're taught these things in school. That there is no truth. That we can make up our own morality. That there is no ethic. There is no higher authority. There is no moral effect on us. That there are no consequences. All of these things are hellish lies that will destroy us. And so if you think you came out of high school and you pretty much know how the world works, you don't. Okay? Paul is issuing a stern warning. Be careful of the elementary principles of this world. They will enslave you and destroy you. But you can be set free. Trust by faith that Christ has accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished to put you right with God and that there is a moral authority and he is good. And he will set you free. And you will grow up from a child to a man and from a slave to a free person. There's nothing better. And Paul desperately wants that for the Galatians. And he wants it for us today. Let's pray.